before we go on the record, uh, yeah, should we start with with follow up because we actually have some follow up. Let's do that. One thing that my wife actually was annoyed that we didn't mention last time when we were talking about churros, yeah, is that she had before we went to Spain, she had had a conversation with someone in her English classes who was from Taiwan who had described a Taiwanese sweet, which mm. was like deep fried batter. And when she went, when we went to Spain and we saw churros, she was like, oh, that's interesting. That's just like the, the Taiwanese sweet. I wonder if the Portuguese brought it over to Taiwan. Mm. Anyway, we looked it up and it turns out it was the other way around. The Portuguese brought it back from Taiwan. <laughs> ah. So, well, that's not known, a known fact, but the origin of churros is, is not known. And right. one of the theories is that it's originally this Taiwanese thing, the name of which I have forgotten. I did know. Maybe I'll put a link in the in the show notes. But uh, that that is thought to be possibly the origin of churros. So there you go. That was quite interesting. Interesting. Nice. Once again, we uh, have China to credit for some kind of amazing gastron- gastronomic achievement once more. Yeah. Probably fans of... Asian noodle dishes will be aware that, of course, the uh, ubiquitous Japanese ramen or ramen. Do you know where ramen comes from and why it's called ramen? Doesn't it mean like stretched out noodles or something? Yeah, so ramen is actually uh, written in katakana in Japanese, which most people I think will probably know katakana is one of the three writing systems that Japanese uses and katakana is specifically for uh, words that are sourced from foreign words mm. basically so it's a wonder why this kind of uh nowadays fairly traditional what is considered a fairly traditional japanese dish ramen it actually has a name that is in katakana instead of in kanji which is the chinese characters or, or anything else mm-hmm. the reason is because ramen comes from la mian which is chinese for pulled bread or pulled pulled oh, uh, right. okay. yeah and actually, um, there is a. I actually, before ever trying Japanese ramen, I actually tried the original Chinese la mian in uh, Xi'an in the middle of China. All right. And I uh, was there for a few months, my first time. How do they compare? Well, I'm afraid to say that the Chinese original la mian is much, much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's very different. To begin with, ramen. Japanese people, Japanese ramen connoisseurs will know that mm. ramen, they pride themselves on the quality of the soup. Mm. So the consistency of the noodles is very important, but the texture and the taste of the soup is extremely important to good right. ramen. Right. And I think that most ramen chefs consider an empty bowl at the end of a, of a ramen meal is success mm-hmm. because mm. it means that somebody has not only enjoyed the noodles but also enjoyed the soup too. Right. Whereas Chinese la mian actually has no soup. Oh, at all? None at all. Oh, uh, okay. And it's made completely differently. Uh, la mian is actually, it's called pulled noodles because the way they do it is they have the dough mm-hmm. and they'll basically roll it out into this long kind of sausage shaped thing. Mm. And then they'll double that up. Mm-hmm. And they they uh, actually hold either end and bang it on the table to sort of stretch mm-hmm. it out. 
Mm-hmm. And they double that up, so now they're holding four strands and bang that mm-hmm. down, double that up, now they're holding eight strands, bang that, and you go eight, 16, 32, 64, yeah. etc. like mille vieux, <laughs> the French cake. Right, right. Um, and, and then they'll cut off either end and then they put that into boiling water. Right. And so it comes out of that and it's put onto mm-hmm. a dish. So it's kind of wet because it's come out of boiling water, mm-hmm. but uh, it is not in a soup. Oh, I see. Okay. So they'll add to that things like um, spring onion and chicken and uh, carrots and other kinds of vegetables. Mm. So the two big differences is no soup. And the other thing is that the noodles are much more like Japanese udon, right. which is sort of this Thicker. thick, chunky yeah. noodle. Yeah. But because it's hand-pulled, mm-hmm. there's, they're not consistent in their shape. So they're mm-hmm. kind of lumpy, mm. which is great. Mm. <laughs> well, a traditional udon are as well. Right, udon udon exactly. traditionally is made in in a similar way. In fact, we did that once for New Year. Right, we we tried to. It's it's, it's very hard to do it at home. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that I think that um, udon is actually made by cutting, isn't it? Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, there's it's a bit of both. I think because I think we did some. Yeah, we we did some cutting and then rolling, rolling it to, right. to get the round shape. But then after rolling them up. We hung it over like a pole to stretch it out to let gravity right, stretch right. it out. Right. Because yeah. I think because um, udon is generally cut mm. and then stretched, mm. whereas with la mien it is always it's stretched by force because you're banging it right. over a table. Stretch with flour and stretch and stretch, and then eventually just the very ends are cut off where they join exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's great because when you're eating, uh, you get sort of you know these really chunky fat parts as well as these thin mm. parts as well. Mm. And um, uh, that's that's a whole lot of fun. Mm. So, anyway, <laughs> great. Yeah, that that's the good. difference between la mien and la mien. Mm. <laughs> and if you can hear the difference between those two, la mien and la mien, then you probably should be studying Chinese and Japanese. Well on your way you to it. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. What other follow up do we have? We had uh, just a little bit um, the the siesta in Spain. I did briefly look it up on Wikipedia after we finished. And it sounds like most people, especially most young young people, uh, young adults, don't nap during the siesta. They still have the long break, but they don't use it to sleep, usually. Mm. Uh, There was a poll taken in 2009 in which 16.2% of Spaniards claimed to take a nap daily. Mm. Uh, 22% did so sometimes, 3.2% weekends only. And the remainder, 58.6%, never. So over half the population is saying they actually never sleep during that midday siesta. That's interesting. So, so I wonder what they do. There you go. Yeah. Well, yes. I'm not sure. But we were sleeping anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the last bit of follow-up we had was about uh, last episode's topic of uh, second second largest cities with inferiority complexes and a tendency to good humour. It's a very specific character (laughs) category. Um, And we had some uh, nice comments on the Reddit, Mm. which, by the way, if you weren't aware, is the place to go to discuss anything. It is. There's a link in the show notes. That's right. We have a topic for every episode. So so jump on and join the conversation. Yes. um, We had a number of comments from, uh, let's see, from... um, Chuck YC17, who of course is... You've done it again. Uh, I know, I know. I did it intentionally. <laughs> Go on, Danny. You tell everybody who that actually is. 
Right. Yeah. That's that's Charlie, who special guest two episodes ago. That's right. Charlie jumped on. Um, we also had Kid Vidi and uh, Spin Echo, and also Wiki Textbot. No, actually, uh... Wiki <laughs> Wiki Textbot. Wiki, Wiki Textbot is a bot, and Kid Vidi is me. Okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, also, Byzantine law. But yes, the the city of Chicago mm. in the United States of America seems to nicely fit the uh, the the category of the second largest city with the inferior inferiority complex and tendency to good humor. I don't know if it, I don't know if it fits the second largest city bit. I don't know if it is the second largest city in the U.S., but mm. it it was known as I think the second city, and apparently it does have that reputation for comedy did you know that i i actually didn't know that i only know two things about chicago mm. number one jazz mm. and number two it's windy <laughs> <laughs> yeah tell me tell me american listeners am i not wrong number one <laughs> jazz number two it's windy well number three comedy apparently well Yes. A lot of famous comedians. So, so that was interesting to know. Um, probably mm. to Americans that was obvious, but uh, not not to me. So right. So um, moving along, I uh, I've heard through the the digital grapevine that uh, you've uh, made yourself a purchase. Right. Talking as we were about the um, what did we call it? The lust for materialism that you tend to drink. Right. Uh, I have made a purchase. In fact, I had already made this purchase when we recorded the last episode, but it hadn't arrived yet. And so I've been itching for the last two weeks to tell you about this. Okay. Uh, So I'm just going to send you a picture, which I will also put in the show notes. Right. I'm ready. My body is ready. I'm famous for resurrecting old memes. My body is ready. Oh. There you go. Look at that. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, Danny! Wow. Now wait a moment. Is this a um, okay? So, for the benefit of those who uh, are uh, not looking at this right at this moment, that I am, uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful-looking Amiga watch. Mm. Now, is this actually secondhand? It is. That is mm. a vintage Amiga uh, watch from the probably the late 40s, early 50s. Right. So it's about 70 years old now, that watch. Wow. And it's in pretty good nick for 70 years. It's it's stunning. Look at it. It's beautiful. The design, let me just describe it. So we're looking at a, a it's a very German design for a Swiss watch. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's very um, sort of simple, isn't it? Yeah. So basically by German, I mean it's extremely minimal. There are no, uh, no numerals mm. on the face. Uh, we're only looking at sort of relatively long uh, index lines f- around the edge. We have, as is typical for a Danny watch, uh, <laughs> right at six o'clock, six o'clock at the bottom of the face, we have a um, a seconds hand, yep. uh, which has a very, very nicely understated kind of um, plus shape, signifying which sort of quadrant of the minute that you're in. Mm-hmm. And the hands are... Very nicely, sort of very subtle sword shapes. I guess there's no loom on this. There's no loom. That's right. Uh, the the indices are uh, what do they call it? It's not inset. It's the opposite of inset. They stick out. Right. 
they stick out protruding um, they, <laughs> protruding right. steel i think the face is silver i'm not sure it's, if it's the metal silver mm. or if it's the color that it was described but it's right. silver so it shines in depending on the light how it catches the light it sometimes looks more white and sometimes looks more silvery right uh, the case is steel it looks uh, uh quite large for a for a watch of that era late 40s early 50s it is quite large it's mm. i think it's 35 millimeters okay so that's actually quite right it's on the small end for these days for now yeah but it's right. large for that era when watches used to be quite a bit smaller right and is this a, a automatic or no this is a, a hand wound right okay uh, manual does it have a display back no, it doesn't. It's got a mm. quite a nice engraving on the back, actually. Really? Uh, which is almost my initials. <laughs> okay. It's engraved with DHW on the back, who I presume was the original owner. Okay. Um, that's actually... Uh, I'm going to go with... It's Daniel Handsome Wright. That's my... Right. <laughs> so it, it pretty much is my initials, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically. Yeah. Well, this is this is congratulations, Danny. This is stunning. It looks absolutely beautiful. Thank um, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite if, pleased. It's it's my first Omega, and it's right. also my first vintage watch. It's my first time buying a watch from a random guy on the internet. <laughs> it's all a very sort of interesting experience. Yeah. So tell tell me the story here. So how did you find it, and why did you choose this one, and and where did you find it? So uh, and how how much did it cost? <laughs> <laughs> I actually got a very good deal on this watch, I think. Mm. I've been keeping an eye on some of the various watch websites on and off for a long time, basically since you introduced me to watches. Mm. And my first mechanical watch that I bought after you introduced me to them as we mentioned in a previous episode uh, was the Stover Marine Original which I bought new. Mm. Uh, and at that time, I, you know, I was a bit scared of the idea of buying vintage online. Uh, there's a lot more. You have to put a little bit more effort in because there's a lot of scams out there, and uh, you don't quite know what you're buying. And obviously, you can't try it on in the shop first either. Mm. But anyway, out of interest, I've been, I've been keeping an eye out, and I've also recently been using an app, which I 100% don't recommend. Because it's it's a bit dangerous. Right. But if you're a gambler and you want to run the risk of accidentally spending all your money on watches, right. uh, you could install the app Watch Recon, which is the app uh, for a website. that The website is a good website. I'll put a link in the show notes, which is a, a website that sort of crawls a lot of the watch forums uh, for, you know, watches that are coming on for sale right. and lets you search by brand or or by type of watch and stuff like that. Right. Or by keyword. Uh, but they have an app. And the app is where it gets really dangerous because on the app you can put an alert oh, I see. on certain brands or certain keywords. So you can get sort of daily updates about like which watches are going on sale. Right. But it's quite good because you get a feeling by looking at those just occasionally with no intention, of course, to buy. No, none of them, uh, of course. <laughs> you get a feel for what's on offer and how much these things tend to cost and 
and how quickly they get snapped up. You know, what kind of watches are popular and what kind of watches are, are less popular and so forth. Right, right. So I've had an alert in a few different categories, one of which is Amiga. But I also have a friend here who is very into Amiga vintage watches. Okay. He has about 20, I think. 20, so okay. He's very, <laughs> very into Amiga watches. Right. And he's also quite active on the Amiga forums, which is where he purchased many of these watches. Right. Amiga forums is a general forum for, for enthusiasts about Amiga watches where, you know, you can just go to talk about watches and, and stuff like that. Mm. But they have one forum on the site, which is for trade and sales. So he mentioned all this to me a couple of years ago. And uh, he knows what he's doing. He's he's actually been on sort of watchmaking and watch repair courses. Last year, I think he flew to England for a course on, wow. on watch repair in, in Sheffield or somewhere like that. So, he, mm. you know, he's, he's quite seriously into, like more seriously than we are, <laughs> right. into, into the watches thing. And specifically Omega. So I was just looking at this site and... Uh, this watch came up. Actually, another watch came up the day before this one, which was twice the price of this one, uh, but looked quite nice. And I showed it to him. And uh, the thing with that was, that was a, a black face. Uh, and he said, black-faced Omegas mm. from that era are quite rare. Mm. And... If this was a genuine original Amiga with a black face, with an original dial that was black, then it seemed suspiciously cheap. Mm. But if it wasn't, if it had been repainted or refinished, then it probably wasn't worth as much as it was listed for. I see. And the the photos were quite unclear, a little bit blurry, specifically the photos of the dial. <laughs> like he had these really crisp photos of like, the frame, the body, uh, and other parts of the watch. And then this photo of the dial was, like, quite blurry. And he's like, right. that's a little suspicious that the thing that everyone's going to want to check the most carefully happens to be the most blurry photo. Right. So he, he, he was urging caution on that one. And then the next day, this one came up, which I actually, in the end, think looks, looks a little nicer. Mm. And this one was... Uh, I guess I'll I'll just say the price. It was four hundred and thirty-two dollars. Oh, okay. Including postage, right? So it's it's you know, I, to people who are not used to all this, that may seem like quite a lot, but no, that really for a mechanical watch, hmm. that is that is very affordable. And for an Amiga, you know, uh, new Amigas are like ten times that. Yeah, uh, that's um, vintage watches are cheaper. So you know, but yeah, that's extremely reasonable. I mean, I'm just. Uh, I haven't just installed Watch Recon, and I'm not looking at it right now. <laughs> but uh, looking over this list of Amiga watches, yeah, you're looking at about one thousand to you know top end is like eight nine thousand. Right, right. The um, eight nine thousand ones tend to be, I think, a little bit newer. Right. The the watches from like the fifties and sixties that you see on that site tend to be in the sort of one thousand to two thousand range. Sometimes as high as four thousand if they are, you know, there's something particularly special or rare about them. Right. The reason this one is so cheap, I think, and by I think, I mean my friend who owns 20 Amiga watches thinks <laughs> right. and has told me, is that 
as far as collectors are concerned, it isn't that special, right? It was right. a fairly common design for its time. It The movement that it uses was a very popular movement. The reason it was a very popular movement was because it's very good and it was known to be good quality. You know, it'll last a long time. It'll still work well 70 years later. I mean, 70 years. Mm. That is a kind of mind-blowingly old piece of technology, right? Mm. But it still still works just fine, keeps good time. And for that reason, it was very popular. But the result is that to collectors, the value goes down because there's quite a lot of them. Right. But to me, I'm not a collector. I just want a watch that looks nice and that I like and that suits me. Mm. Uh, and so for me, it's perfect, right? I got a good deal. I'm really happy with it. The other thing is there is, you, you can't really see in that photo, there's a little bit of a chip at the top right between the one, two indices right. on the actual glass. And I think, again, like day to day, as I look down at the watch to read the time, I don't notice it at all. Mm. And I think other people who see the watch on me are even less likely to notice it, right? Mm. But again, to a collector, that's like, that's a real flaw, right? They want their watch to be like super pristine. Right. So I think those two things sort of, and this was a real, like the Amiga forums is like a real enthusiast forum, right? So those things all sort of combined in my favor really right. so that i got a, a really good deal and uh, and i got what i'm looking for because i'm looking for different something different really to what a collector is looking for right right so anyway so i'm i'm really pleased with it it is a little bit of a nerve-wracking experience doing this sort of i mean it's not even ebay right it's it's literally sending private messages on a forum and then agreeing to send large sums of money <laughs> right right and hoping you get a watch <laughs> i think yeah i mean i have to i have to say i'm not distracted right now by looking at what <laughs> um, but i have to say that uh uh it's fantastic i mean what a what a beautiful watch to begin with mm. um but also but also the um it, it suits you so well the the fact that it is Amiga, i'm curious what it is about the Amiga brand that drew you to this i've been I mean, partly introduced by my friend here who's like super into Amiga above all the other brands. Right. So he's introduced me to sort of quite a lot. Um, he's, I see all his different watches because he wears a different watch every day, right? Mm. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so I've got to see some of the range of designs. But over the last sort of couple of years, I mean, I've been looking at, at a lot of brands, including a lot of Swiss brands, also obviously the, the German band, brands that we both know and love mm. and i've also sort of i think we mentioned in a previous episode my respect and interest in, in rolex has grown over time but every time i sort of look at what rolex has to offer i always come away a little bit like oh, i can tell they're so well made and i have respect for for the brand and the company that makes them but i just don't like any of these watches very much <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas Amiga, I think, has a real range of different styles. And I actually like really like quite a lot of their designs. There's quite a few Amiga designs that I'm quite drawn to. Mm. And I think they have a... I don't know, there's some, they're very nice, well-balanced design without being too ostentatious. Mm. 
Um, so I, I like that. And also, of course, their, their long history and they're just, you know, they're, they're a very good watch brand. Mm. There's another uh, brand which I've been interested in for a long time, especially in their, their vintage stuff, which is Vacheron Constantin, mm-hmm. which I... I'm sure I mispronounced. It's probably more like Constantin or something, but never mind. <laughs> um, and there was a watch which I saw in Kyoto in a vintage. There was this, this little shop right by the Imperial Palace, the Imperial Gardens in Kyoto, with this just this one old guy who obviously just really loved watches. Mm. And I think he was retired and he was running this shop sort of in his retirement. And he said he only ha- ever had like eight watches in stock at any one time. So it wasn't like a big shop full of all different watches. It was just like eight hand-picked watches. And when he sold one of them, he would go out and choose another one very carefully mm. to stock. So I sat down with him for a while and uh, he brought out this watch, which was absolutely beautiful. Uh, rose gold. I think this was old. I think this was from like the 30s or something like that. Mm. And just in incredible condition. Uh, a little bit smaller than this one. And a real dress watch, you know. Mm. and at the time well and still now really <laughs> i just plain couldn't afford it right it was quite expensive right so i don't regret not buying it because buying it wasn't an option but it would have been nice to have been able to buy it <laughs> mm. and so i always sort of am on the lookout for that watch like as time goes forwards i just want to keep an eye out because i i really liked it mm. and i've never seen it exactly that watch i've seen other similar designs but i've never seen that one and i recently discovered that during that early period during like the 30s and the 40s they only made like 11 of each design or something like that so like every watch from that era is like a collector's watch essentially because they made so few of Mm. of each design so i'll probably never see that one again that was the watch that first got me interested in the notion of vintage watches in the first place but this one is much more approachable obviously in, in terms of price and also it's a little more everyday wearable that mm. other one would be really only for special occasions mm. no this is this is stunning and um uh it suits you so well i think the i feel you very very uh very much on uh, what you say about rolex mm. and unfortunately for me the way that you feel about rolex kind of extends for me to pretty much most most Swiss watch design, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, and that includes Amiga as well for me personally. Like I've never really seen an Amiga watch or a Rolex watch that kind of appeals to me the way that any German designed watch does. Mm. And I don't know why that is. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I'm not, I'm, there's something about the style of German watches that really, really just appeals to me a lot. And uh, I've never had that same feeling uh, toward any watch from uh, well, that I've seen of Swiss design, which is really weird. I don't really know why. Mm. Uh, and when you look at the sort of the spectrum of diversity, of visual diversity amongst all of the different Swiss Swiss watch brands, you know, it doesn't make sense that, you know, there could be something about Swiss watch design fundamentally that doesn't appeal to me compared to German watch design. However, I think Rolex is a funny one, and Amiga too. Those two brands specifically are odd because there's so much legacy surrounding their designs right. that even though, like aesthetically, they don't appeal to me at all, mm-hmm. the Speedmaster or you know the the GMT Master right. or 
any of those or the Submariner or any of those sort of classic, classic Swiss watch designs, mm-hmm. it has it brings with it that that legacy. You look at it and you know, like for example, the the one Rolex watch, you know what I'm going to say here, but the yep. one Rolex watch which <laughs> does appeal to me is the uh, is the Pepsi GMT Master. Mm-hmm. You know they've reissued that now. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I just yeah, thought you might that's be interested. Fine. You're just gonna put, <laughs> just going to put that out there, that little nugget. I'll, um, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. That's very helpful of you. Anyway, um, yeah, that's the one Rolex design that appeals to me. But when I look at it, I think that, it's not the actual design that appeals to me about that. It's the amazing legacy behind it, mm. you know, how it came to be. And then that sort of iconic design is appealing because of its history and not because of visually what it looks like. Right. Or what, I, what I mean to say is if you'd just shown me that watch design without telling me anything about it and I didn't know anything about the history of it, mm. then I would probably say, yeah, okay, well, it's not really appealing but very nice. Mm. And that's kind of the same for uh, – that's the way that I feel with regard to most Swiss watches and Amiga as well. Unfortunately, like I think that the classic Amiga obviously is the Speedmaster, right? And um, that one, of course, is a classic and has an amazing legacy—a legacy that not many watches can uh, can ever reach. And that is that it was the uh, very first watch on the moon. I don't think any watch can reach it because there's, there's no other first. Right. <laughs> That's right. But I mean, um, and I think the uh, there are a number of lunar missions, I think, mm. that were um, fundamentally critically influenced by the reliability of that watch. Mm. Uh, I don't actually, I can't bring to mind the exact story, but I think there was one with some systems failure where they actually had to use their Amiga watch to time something. All right. I'm not sure somebody will have to fill in that gap for us, but, you know, I mean, the Speedmaster is is... What an amazing technological achievement and what an amazing legacy. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, to look at the design of the Speedmaster, for me personally, and if I compare that to uh, some of the, the German watch designs that I like, it, it doesn't sort of hit me the same way. I know what you mean. I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things. Firstly, the Speedmaster, I more or less agree with you. I don't actually like, for me, most mm. Speedmasters, except for the limited edition uh, blue panda dial they did uh, in mm. 2016 i think it was was their limited edition for 2016 2017 mm. and and that was beautiful and so i would i would snap that up but other than that i don't think i'd i'd go for a speedmaster either and the, the submariner as well like the submariner is a funny one because it's obviously it's such a well-known design but it really i think depends on the person like mm. for me, probably I don't think the Submariner would be right, but I know people who own a Submariner. You mm. know them too. Yes, <laughs> who suit it just so well. Yeah, and you see that watch on them. Yeah, and you think that is just the perfect and and that suits well the particular person we're talking about that suits him very well. Right, and also I think he makes the watch look good as well. Right, right. like the the the. You, when you see it in the context that it's supposed to be worn, right? which isn't just, I don't just mean literally diving, but I, I mean just, you know, on a person that suits it, mm. then I think you you sort of get it, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, agree, I agree with that. Um, and and the, the specific person that we're talking about, he knows that we're talking about him right now because I know that he, <laughs> he, uh, he, um, 
he he is a regular listener of the show, but um, yeah, that you, you're absolutely right. Like when you see that watch on him, you say, okay, right, yeah, I get it now. Right, you know, I'm mean, just because of his lifestyle and his hobbies and the things that he enjoys. Mm. It's such a, a perfect match for um, for the for the kind of the, the principle behind that watch. Right, and I think um, the Speedmaster. I'm I'm just sort of looking at it now, not on the Watch Recon app at all, mm-hmm. um, but I think that. Uh, one fundamental thing for me is that I, I don't tend to like dial face designs that are terribly busy. Yeah. And your choice with this Amiga watch, of course, is is superb because it's, all it has on the watch is a very understated plus to show you the quadrant of the set, the minute that you're in. Right. With the second style and then the logo Amiga above it. Right. But a lot of the Swiss watch designs tend to be fairly busy on the face and like Rolex is no exception there. And actually they are, you know, criminally guilty of this because when you look at most Rolex designs, it'll tell you everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, it's interesting you, you see that. And then, of course, you look at uh, the Japanese web designs. Sorry, not web designs, Japanese watch designs. Well, web designs are fairly busy as well over there. But <laughs> Yes, that's it is. like the uh, the classic casio g-shock which has like every single feature that the watch has all written all over it Mm -hmm. it's just like like a a, a mess of writing all over it Mm. you kind of wonder whether they sort of took that cue from rolex it's like well you know what should we put on this face guys well i guess we could just put the numbers there to show the time because that's what people want to see right wait a moment rolex have got you know superb chronometer something rather oyster something perpetual something you know all written all over their over their watch faces and by comparison german watch designs are uh are incredibly minimal right and they tend to tend to feature basically just the watch brand or sometimes not even that and that's it right and then you, the rest is just the time and I, that's something that really appeals to me yeah i think i'm i'm with you on the minimalism i tend to go for fairly minimal understated watch designs hmm. and i really like german watch design as well but i think german design it, painting with very broad strokes here of course hmm. german design tends towards the stark right very right. stark tend to be quite bold designs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the Swiss design, when you take, like, for example, the watch that I've just bought, it's minimal, but it's not really stark. It's minimal in a sort of refined way, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I agree um, with that. It's, it's... So, and I, I enjoy both styles, you know? Right. There's a, there's a certain sort of, I guess, sort of delicacy, sort of a delicate more gentle approach to minimalism, whereas the German minimalism is much more brutal. Right. And it's it's much more, yeah, stark is a good word. Mm. And a perfect example of this, if you're wanting to uh, put a link in the show notes for a design, the designs that really sum this up are the, mm. the designs of the SIN watch brand, S-I-N-N. Yes. That's basically what we mean by brutally minimal because they their logo has a, a kind of a finesse to it because it is sort of a cursive cursive typeface right but beyond that the rest of the watch face is just what you see is what you get very very clinical industrial brutal kind of minimalism another brand which i've mentioned before which i have serious serious watch lust for 
And no, I didn't just find a very nicely priced second-hand version of this <laughs> on the Watch Recon app, which I haven't downloaded and have not been looking at as we've been talking, is Meister Singer. Yes. And uh, Meister Singer... Oh yeah, there's a few Meister Singers on Watch Recon, actually. Not that I've been looking at those either, but... No, there's not. No, no. I have no idea what you're talking about. But anyway, um, Meister Singer is famous for one-handed watches. Mm. And uh, in this case, it's, it's very simple. It's basically just the hour hand of a regular uh, two-handed watch. But it's designed so that the hour hand, which is normally short and stumpy, so that you can differentiate it from the minute hand. In this case, the hour hand is, is usually very, very fine mm. uh, with Meister Singer design so that you can see where the hour hand is in between the numerals so you can get a basic idea of you know whether it's 3 or 3.30 or 3.45. Right. And the idea behind it, of course, is that you know uh, when you think about it, when you're looking at the time, how often do you actually need to know that it is 3.53? More often than not, you're probably going to want to know it's 4 or it's 3.45 or it's the times that you're likely to be doing scheduling something. Uh, that's the philosophy behind it. Right. But... Meister Singer is a great example because their designs are kind of on the Swiss end of the style spectrum, but they're still very obviously German. Mm. They're also very minimal, but there's a more there is a sort of a, a, a delicate, more ornate aesthetic to their designs, right. which tends to pull them more in that Swiss direction. But still, it's undeniably German. Uh, so, yes, yes. Anyway, interesting. Well. Congratulations. I Thank think you. That, uh, I can't wait to see it in person. Mm. Can't wait to see you in person, for that matter. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> so, uh, actually, I have a little bit of news for you. Oh, yeah? My uh, son has recently, as in about a, uh, about a month, a bit more than a month ago, taken up a new instrument. Oh, yeah? And that is the saxophone. Very nice. Yes. It's a- I'd do well in Chicago with the saxophone. Yes, he would. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. He he learnt piano from the age of three, mm. um, and and has always had a, a strong sort of talent for music, um, which I don't know that this is you know it could be uh, genetic or it mm-hmm. could be uh, could be the environment that he was raised in because music is very normal in my family, mm-hmm. but uh, piano sort of dropped off in recent years, and uh, wanted to start a new instrument and. Uh, yeah, he chose the saxophone. Mm. And when my, when my father asked him, why did you choose the saxophone? It's an interesting choice. Mm. He said, well, it looks cool. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad said, yep, yep, you just you can't deny that. Yep, it, it looks cool. That's true. <laughs> it, it looks pretty much as, as cool as you can get for a wind instrument. The <laughs> um, for a wind instrument. For a wind instrument. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> throwing shade at the entire wind instrument playing... <laughs> demographic of our listener base there <laughs> i mean let's face it i mean let's face it. i mean come on they're they're, they're pretty daggy really however <laughs> so do I they it- do they have uh smaller saxophones for for sort of junior learners like that well that's the beauty of the saxophone because the um obviously saxophone you have soprano alto tenor and baritone oh yeah yeah are the four types of okay. saxophone um, a soprano saxophone is more or less the same size as a clarinet, mm-hmm. and the length of that is more or less the same size as the length of an alto saxophone. Okay. The main difference being that an alto saxophone obviously have the, has the bell that curves up at the bottom, whereas the soprano doesn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, so for a, a nine-year-old, mm. um, an alto saxophone is actually a good size. 
Okay. So, yeah, it's convenient. What is the difference in range between those four? I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not actually sure uh, of the, the specific range in intervals. Mm -hmm. But for sure, uh, the sound of a soprano and an alto saxophone are notably different. Right. You know, I think um, uh, most people would know the sound of the soprano saxophone from, you know, such classic players like Kenny G. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a much more nasal sound, mm-hmm. uh, whereas an alto saxophone obviously has that more uh, kind of um, uh, kind of gnarly, raspy, uh, kind of full-bodied sound. Right. Um, the classic, what you think of as the classic sort of saxophone, eighties sax solo. Right. That's right. <laughs> sort of yeah, sound. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That is that, yeah, exactly. That is basically the, the alto saxophone. Right. And then the tenor saxophone is is more. Um, uh, uh, is a is a a very cruel generalization, but uh, uh, you would mostly associate that with more of the jazz sound, like Coltrane, mm-hmm. and deeper. Anyway, I've so I've given the saxophone a try, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'm I'm very well qualified to cast shade on the entire family of wind instruments because I'm <laughs> through and, I'm through and through a uh, a string player, right? Um, and basically, when it comes to instruments that look cool. You know, I have to agree with my son that this is the the coolest looking one for a wind instrument. Second, second probably would be trombone. Right. I was going to say trombone. When I was your son's age, I was all about the trombone, although I never right. played one. I mean, it basically looks like a bazooka, <laughs> and uh, it kind of is really. But um, the the uh, the saxophone actually quite it surprised me quite a lot. Um, I had assumed that a saxophone would be kind of in the same vein as a brass instrument or something like the oboe. Right. And that is that it's very hard to make a sound. Mm. You know, you need to have a very, very specific embouchure, which is the the form that you make with your mouth in Mm -hmm. order to produce the sound, Mm -hmm. in order to actually get anywhere with it. Mm. So I learned French horn for three years. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually had to stop playing because I got braces on my teeth and it was just too painful. Right. Strangely, the saxophone, after having tried my son's saxophone several times, it's actually surprisingly easy to make a sound. Mm. Like you really, you basically just sort of close your lips over the mouthpiece and get your get the pressure just right, and then it will start vibrating. Right. I mean, because it is technically a woodwind instrument, right? Like you look at it yeah. and you think, well, that looks the same as all those brass instruments and different from those wooden instruments over there but Mm. (laughs) technically speaking because it uses the same like the mouthpiece is similar to that from a clarinet right yeah exactly i mean it's more or less exactly the same so it's a it's a single reeded instrument so you're Mm. basically causing a reed to vibrate on the solid part of the mouthpiece Mm. Uh, and that's why it's much easier than for example an oboe or a bassoon Mm. which is a double reeded instrument where you basically have to control the pressure between two soft wet pieces of reed mm. <laughs> which is very very challenging mm. um whereas the saxophone yeah i was surprised that my son and myself you know both of us could make a clean note out of it fairly easily mm. the really surprising part for me in in trying my son's saxophone mm. and it has given me a whole whole new fresh appreciation for uh you know excellent saxophone playing mm-hmm. is how incredibly sensitive a saxophone is like you really it, it's really like talking in sound 
when mm. just the slightest you can make a note easily enough mm-hmm. but just the slightest fluctuation of the pressure on your lips will cause the pitch to fluctuate oh right and it will it will cause the 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 tone of mm-hmm. the of the note that you're producing to also fluctuate and you can go from sort of you know very kind of um uh, yeah, nasally harsh sounds to mm. very, very soft, mellow sounds. I suppose that's just... why those sort of the classic 80s sax solos that you sort of imagine in your head have that sort of sound in them, right? Where they're very, very quickly sort of arpeggiating and moving between sort of different different timbres. And, and... Right. And it's, it's very much intentional. Like that right. style of that mm. sort of 80s, who's a good example? I guess uh, Bruce Springsteen's, uh, what's his name? Clements, Clements. Clements something or other. Mm. Anyway, you know, that style of sort of 80s sax solo where it's kind of got that gnarly tone, mm. that's very much by choice. Mm. You know, you, you don't ha- that's not the way a saxophone always sounds. That's right, just right, the way right. that, that style is. And, you know, when you when you actually try a saxophone, I was amazed that, yeah, you, like all of this range of kind of tones, they're, they're all options for you there, mm. just all entirely depending on how you shape your mouth and how hard you're blowing. Mm-hmm. So that now, when you think about it in, in that context, when you go and listen to a, a uh, like a saxophone playing or a master saxof- saxophonist, mm. like like for example uh, John Coltrane, mm. you know you, you really get the sense. Wow, it's really like they are talking in the sound of a saxophone, mm. <laughs> because obviously when we're talking, we're we're shaping our you know our consonants and our vowels in order to produce language, right. And and these these amazing players are shaping this default tone of the saxophone mm. in either direction, mellow or raspy and gnarly, mm. I- entirely out of choice, and it's a stylistic decision. Mm. And then, of course, they're able to to control the pitch with such granularity that uh, uh, you know sliding gliss sliding between notes and vibrato, mm. and all of that is is entirely by choice, and it's entirely down to just very very minute changes in in the way that they're blowing and the way that they're gripping the way that they're shaping their mouth around the mouthpiece mm. so i actually um think that a sort of a companion for the saxophone in the string instrument world is likely to be the guitar oh really because yeah the guitar also is an instrument where it's actually you know it's quite easy to pick up you know mm-hmm. it's quite easy to to make a make a note, and it's quite easy to learn how to play chords and to mm-hmm. strum, and you can get to the point of being able to, you know, play basic guitar music fairly fairly quickly. Yeah, that's true. But you know, beyond that, the, the finer nuances of uh, expression, like musical expression through the guitar, mm-hmm. that's a long, long journey. Mm-hmm. And I get the feeling that the saxophone is the same uh, because it's it seemed it's surprisingly easy to to get to the point of producing sound. Right. Then, of course, you need to remember which key produces what note. Right. But then beyond that, you know, the journey to being able to uh, really effectively express yourself with the mm-hmm. saxophone that's going to be a really long and wonderful journey for my son. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what a what a interesting surprise. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, I hope he enjoys it. He's doing very, very well, actually. And he, um, unfortunately, he is in a group lesson and mm-hmm. already he's a little bit ahead of the other classmate that he's playing with. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a shame because you can you can tell that he needs to be learning much faster mm-hmm. than than he is because of, you know, his, his classmate moving a little bit more slower than he is. But right. anyway, you know, it's... Um, 
I try to do what I can uh, when we're practicing. So we practice together every day. Mm -hmm. And I say together because uh, one nice thing that um, the uh, music school that he's going to here in Stockholm, they give him a textbook that comes with a with a CD all right. with uh, backing tracks to all of the exercises. Oh, cool. Yeah, which is really great because basically then he can um, – he can be practicing these rudimentary exercises but right. feel more like he's playing music rather right, than right. just... And it's quite know. good to get experience of playing with with other musicians. I mean, it's just a CD, but yeah, that's something I never really got used to Like, because I spent most of my time learning guitar like on my own in my room practicing mm. with nothing else. Right. And, and I'm quite good at solo guitar. <laughs> but <laughs> right. if I go and like just to jam with somebody... Like, A, I get really nervous and I don't really know how to do it. It's just not a thing I, I did. Right. And so I never, and I, I think I do struggle a little bit with just working with other people, you know, and just keeping, mm. you know, just basic things like keeping the rhythm going and, and, and also bouncing off of each other and all of that. Like, right, right. You know, it's good, good to get that experience from the start, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so to enhance the experience for him, basically when he's practicing every day, I'll play the bass mm. part to the, mm. the backing track. Um, and so we're kind of playing together, but we've got right. the, the drums and the keyboards coming from the from the CD. Nice. And so, yeah, I do what I, do what I can to help him with thinking more about basically preparing him for becoming more expressive on the saxophone. So thinking mm. more about the sounds that he's making, you know, um, this this part, sounds like it should be a bit more mellow so can you make it sound a bit more uh, softer and a bit more gentle and this part sounds like it needs to be more bold so can you make it sound stronger right and sort of helping That's him cool. thinking about those things because yeah. i can see that when it comes to um the saxophone you know as he learns more the technique is going to come fairly quickly and the rest is just going to become how can i express myself through this instrument right right yeah yeah i suppose uh, i guess i suppose that is the difference between like you know, a, a real musician and somebody who's just learned learn a few chords and scales and, and can read music, which I put myself in the second category, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, because no, I, I don't like, I'm, you know, I'll look at a piece of music and and practice and learn to be able to play it and stuff like that. But I'm like, I'm really focused on just being able to, to play the thing right. without going to that next level of like really thinking about, well, this piece, this part of the piece is, is sort of evoking this emotion. And so I should play it like this. I should do this and that, you know, I rarely get to that point, I think. Right. Actually, um, I, I think I would have to say that, you know, if you're playing a musical instrument and you're playing music, then that makes you a musician. So I'm not really sure you could say this is a difference between a, a I, real I musician. Guess, I guess, but. But you know what I'm getting at? Like this, this sort of, there's there's a deeper level of the artistry when you're thinking at, at that level, I think. Sure. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a, a very uh, nice segue into a topic that I was wanting to chat to you about. All right. And that is DJs. So okay. to open it up with to open it up with the with a question, do you consider a DJ a musician? Yeah, oh, that's a uh, that's. Thin ice. <laughs> so, we've already pissed off all the wind instrument players. <laughs> Next, we're going to lose all the DJs. We're going to have no listeners left. <laughs> uh, I don't know, really. I think probably my instinct would jump to no, and then you'd be able to point out a counterexample, and I'd go, oh, yeah, obviously, that's a musician. <laughs> okay, I think we should first qualify that we're not talking about turntablists. 
Okay. So a DJ and a turntablist, let's just separate those two. For okay, well, maybe we need some definitions. Then. Okay, so um, DJ, like the, the classic idea of a DJ is somebody who's basically got two records, uh, two like vinyl records and a mixer in between, and they're playing music for people. Mm-hmm. So live. The, the, you've live, right. Yeah. The extension of that in one direction is a turntablist, mm-hmm. and that is somebody who has uh, developed an amazing ability to scratch records mm-hmm. and to basically make an LP record player more or less like a percussion instrument, right. more or less, okay. um, where they're producing all these interesting, amazing timbres from scratching and reversing uh, records and lots of neat tricks with... Uh, the mixer faders and stuff like that to create that style of, you know, hip-hop music, or at least most turntablism is associated with hip-hop music. But okay. So that's turntablism. And turntablism, undeniably, that's a musician working right there because, you know, right. you have – it takes so much practice to develop that ability. Mm. But the way that they do it, of course, is highly musical in that it's very percussive and it's all based on rhythm and it's based on style and flair mm. mm. and it is a kind of expression. So let's put that aside. Okay. So the other direction that DJism has mm-hmm. developed in is, of course, what we more commonly associate with a DJ and that is somebody who's in a nightclub basically stringing together the tracks of music mm-hmm. so that they're playing seamlessly one after the other and entertaining a crowd. Right. And sometimes that will also involve... I mean, I'm no connoisseur of nightclubs. <laughs> but uh, f- from what I've read, sometimes <laughs> that, will, uh, that will involve like, like more than just fading out one track and fading in the other, right? It might involve like doing a bit of voiceover, fading out and shouting something I don't fully understand. And doing like, there's other stuff, right? Than just absolutely. like going through a playlist. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I had this discussion today, actually, with a good friend of mine, also from Adelaide. Mm. And um, he was actually lamenting about the, the degree that DJing has become automated these days. Mm. So in the good old days, you know, when you're matching, when you're putting, stringing together music on records, mm-hmm. that, in, that requires a fundamental ability of beat matching. Right. So that's basically where you have one record playing and that's going out to front of house and your right. entire crowd of people is hearing that. Mm-hmm. And on your headphones, you'll have your next song. Mm-hmm. And basically with the controls on your uh, on record the speed player, of the, yeah. Yeah. You'll be yeah, 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 of course. That's why the, they've you've got that image of the DJ sort of going back and forth between right, yeah. So in this case, you've got the that they'll be matching the second one through their headphones, so that when they flip over to it, from the crowd's point of view, these two pieces of music line up with the rhythm, so that everybody can have a great time dancing. Right. Do they keep that track at that rhythm for the duration of that song, or do they actually subtly let it slowly sort of roll back to its original? speed if you know what I mean. no generally generally they'll yeah generally playing the music at the original speed is not the priority okay so do you end up at the same bpm for the whole night well, that's the thing so this is where this the, the skill of this kind of dj comes in mm-hmm. and and this is this is the part where uh, i was wanting to talk about whether or not this can be considered musical okay because a, a really good dj goes far beyond just matching the beat and this is the uh, the discussion I had with my friend was that these days, you know, with uh, DJing with digital sources, mm-hmm. 
a lot of the beat matching is automated. Right, so you, computer you can, can very easily do that for you, right? Exactly. So you basically just press a button, and now this track will be automatically synced to play at a certain speed mm -hmm. so that it matches that track. Mm. And you just press a button, sync them together, and off you go. You flip between them, and job done. Right. So he was lamenting the fact that it's become so automated mm -hmm. that you kind of have to ask yourself, what is a DJ these days if anybody can just stand up there and just put together tracks of music that they like using a big fat sync button? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's I think where the the art of DJing comes in, and this is the discussion about whether or not this is musical. Mm -hmm. And that is a good DJ has an amazing ability to read the crowd and to basically sense, you know, a, a crowd of people and their mood. Right. So you know, you could see that okay, everybody's kind of getting a little tired now, so we need to tone it down, put on something a bit more relaxing. Uh, and then aim to sort of slowly work them back up again. Right. That's the difference between like a live DJ and somebody who's just made a playlist and lets it go. Exactly. Yeah, right. exactly. So a live DJ will prepare. Uh, they'll prepare a list of songs that they're going to be playing and they'll prepare a playlist or a, a crate of records. Mm. Uh, and basically, as they're moving through the night, they may sense, okay, everybody's really, really excited right now and everybody's jumping around and having a great time mm. so i'd planned to sort of tone things down at this point but i'm not going to because i can see everybody they just want to you know have have the greatest time tonight and so i'm going to sort of keep the tension high for a little longer mm. so they'll make that choice to okay well this is a track i know that's every going everybody's going to love so i'll put that on here instead of what i had planned to do mm. so that degree of spontaneity and the ability to improvise like that requires a very, very good knowledge of the music that they're playing because mm -hmm. you need to know this track is going to fit with this mood right now. Right, right. right. It also, uh, so this is all beyond the skill of beat matching, mm -hmm. assuming that that's automated now. Mm. Uh, you need to be able to read the crowd. Um, also, adjusting tempo, like you said, it's a, it's a valid question. Does it mean that if they're just matching the tempo of songs that the entire night is going to be the same tempo as the very first one that they played? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the very first song you choose is a very important decision in that case. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's that's another thing because, you know, a really, really good DJ will be able to very, very subtly and gently nudge up and down the, the tempo of a song. Right. As, as people are dancing to it mm. so that things will gradually slow down or things right. will gradually speed up. Right. So there's not only judging, you know, I mean, it all comes down to judging the mood of a, a large group of people, mm. but, you know, bringing the tempo up to increase tension, selecting the right pieces of music, selecting music that's popular right now that people will know mm -hmm. so that when people's, you know, their favorite song, song comes on, oh, I've heard this one, yeah, you know, that, that excitement mm. of that moment, mm. uh, that's also the skill of a DJ. Mm. So can we argue then that this is a musician because a musician, what does a musician do? They're basically, they are expressing themselves via an instrument to express some kind of emotion or idea or feeling mm -hmm. and hopefully to inspire the listener to feel the same way. Mm -hmm. So then if a DJ is watching a crowd of people and thinking everybody's kind of really relaxed tonight and not really, they don't really look like they want to jump around too much. So mm -hmm. I'm going to play something kind of more mild, right. at a slower tempo so right. that everybody can enjoy their relaxing time rather than jumping about. That also is kind of like, Here's an emotion that I want to create in my listeners, and I'm going to use my instrument to produce that. I suppose. Well, your instrument is other people's music. 
That's right. So <laughs> that's exactly that's the right. that's the tricky part right there because right. they. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, famous DJs will obviously be playing a lot of their own music and also DJs who are producers as well do that too, mm-hmm. of course. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, for the, by and large, they'll be playing other people's music but putting it together in a way that produces right. some kind of emotion. Right. And, I, I mean, other people's music, you know, th- that's, a, that's a spectrum as well, right? Because a lot of music, especially, you know, hip-hop and, and other related genres, use a lot of sampling and they'll sample sometimes quite significant chunks of, quote, other people's music, right? But right, they are right. definitely, I think, well, maybe some would argue, but but I would say they're definitely in the making music camp, right? They may be using mm. samples, but they are sort of using them in a different way from the original song and creating their own song out of it, right? Right, right, exactly. I think that the one thing, one comment that my friend made, which was really, really spot on. So we had this discussion and I, I basically said the same thing. Mm. Uh, but I, was, I said that I think one thing is that if you take the technical side of DJing, so that's beat matching, mm. is it possible to say then that, for example, you have this young, young aspiring DJ who has a natural talent for entertaining people and for mm. reading a crowd and for kind of sensing instinctively this is what people want to hear right now. Mm-hmm. But that person is held back by the lack of a technical ability to properly beat match and to properly string songs together seamlessly. Mm-hmm. So in this situation, that person cannot play effectively to a large group of people and basically be appreciated for their ability to read a crowd right. because they are hindered by their lack of technical ability. Right. So now we have lost something because this crowd will not know the genius of this person's ability to read them. Right. However, then, if you say that we now have technology to make those technical aspects that much easier, you just press the sync button, mm. then now this person is actually able to get out there and to impress people with their ability to read them because the technical aspect has become easier. Right. So is this a good thing? I don't know if the focus on like that one physical skill has all that much merit Mm. because it's such a mechanical thing it's it's actually pretty much the least creative part of the djing job right Mm. like it's the most mechanical i've got this one at this tempo and this one at the other tempo right and i mean it is a skill don't get me wrong like it's not easy yeah, but, and beyond that, of course, there's phrasing too. But I mean, that's as you said, is still mechanical phrasing. As in, here is where that the, the top of the right. You know, if, if, presumably if you could get like a computer 16... to do that as well, right? You could draw a line of where you wanted it to start and finish, and how you wanted it to to right, shift right. and and all yeah. of that. Yeah. So if that sort of flipping that idea around, if that's all that DJing is, if that's what made DJing artistic then was djing ever artistic in the first place right like Mm. if that's if that's the thing you're going to choose to focus on then and a computer can just totally make it redundant then what value did that specific thing have in the first place right i don't i don't think i necessarily put much stock in the fact of a human having done this purely mechanical thing that a computer could do better right 
I mean, I do think it's a, I, I do have respect for the human who can do it. Right. I think it's very impressive. Like, there's lots of things like that, right? Where a human could do amazing sort of hand eye coordination exercises that are very impressive and difficult to do, but that a computer could do better. Right, right. But I wouldn't call it art, right? That's right. just, that's dexterity more than anything mm. else. Right. Whereas all the other stuff you're talking about, about reading the crowd and being, and understanding their emotion and understanding what sort of emotion you want to bring about uh, and manipulating the music in order to do that, that is all, that all sounds much more artistic and much harder, I think, for a computer to replicate. Right, right. So, and, but, I, but is, it, is it music? I'm not sure. It's, I, I think I'm definitely with you on, like, is it, is it art? But, but is it music? I'm not sure. Maybe it's a different kind of art. And I'm, I'm not sure how much that question even matters. Right. So th that's actually one thing that my friend said that was uh, really, really interesting was that mm. I think he said that, you know, one reason that it's easy to feel disappointed by the fact that the technical side of DJing has become so simplified now is that as somebody who's trained in a musical instrument, mm. as he is, mm -hmm. It's not the way that he was brought up to understand how musical ability should be developed. Mm. And when you think of it in the context of a musical instrument, it is exactly as you've described. Basically, you start off with a highly mechanical action, mm. which is how to pluck a string or how to fret a note or mm. how to produce a note on a wind instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, that is purely mechanical and there's nothing artistic about that. Mm. But it's, you know, it's beyond that where you, like with the saxophone, after you've learned how to produce a note and memorized, you know, what button does what, it's it's the journey after that that takes you and forms you as, uh, you know, a, a um, expressive saxophonist. Right. So with the case of DJing, now you've removed that technical side. Right. You have – obviously, you need some degree of knowledge about, you know, how to, how to set up your equipment and the, how to load a song and how to press the sync button. <laughs> but um, uh, you've removed that mm -hmm. and what's remaining is just that artistic journey. Mm. And so that's why as a, a trained musician, as he is, it's easy to look at this and say, well, anybody can do that and see that actually the technical mechanical side has been removed and that doesn't feel right from the point of view of an instrument player. Okay. Well, how does your friend feel about uh, two categories of people? Composers and people who write electronic music using a sequencer. Mm. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. I mean, he actually has experience with producing music electronic music himself as well. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually was a, another discussion that we had that spun off from this discussion about DJs. Mm. And that is uh, the current state of producing electronic music. Mm -hmm. uh, and how if you compare now to the 90s, mm. in the 90s, I would say that it's basically, it's kind of 70% technique and 30% artistry. Mm -hmm in that if you want to create, you know, if you look at these classic 90s techno groups, any one of them, the amount of technical knowledge that had to go into actually doing what they did mm -hmm. is huge compared to these days. Mm -hmm. Now, these days, you know, if you get any one of the, the popular uh, digital audio workstation packs, like, for example, Ableton Live or Logic Pro X or Cubase or FL mm -hmm. Studio or reason or you know any one of these yeah basically if you have good taste you can create a dance floor smasher 
<laughs> a, a banger. You can you can create it with relatively little technical knowledge about how this equipment has to work together because it's mm. all been so simplified. Mm. I think reason is a little bit different from the others in your list, but I'll I'll go with you anyway. Yeah, I, I think also the what kind of exacerbates the situation mm. is that now, of course, with the the wealth of amazing sample libraries that you can purchase. Mm. Yeah, basically, if you want to make a, a dubstep banger, then you just go and buy a dubstep banger sample pack and just string together the samples and there you go. And if you're using something like Ableton Live or FL Studio or whatever, it makes it really, really easy to do that. And it, it comes down to the point then that, you know, what's the difference between the, the, the bedroom studio warrior battling his or her way you know, making making tracks because they're easy to do and because it's fun mm. versus the, the highly paid professional super famous producer. And I think really it comes down to taste because it seems like these days that the techniques for doing these things has become simplified to quite a large degree. Mm. So therefore, basically, you are appreciated for your taste. Right. And I think also like... Also, it partly depends on on what you're making, right? There's a there's a set of things that are very easy to do using the tools that make it easy to do those things, right? Right. And then there's That's a true. set of things that falls outside of that bracket and and require the same skill that has always been required. And so, right. depending on what your taste is and what the taste of your audience is, mm. that may or may not be sort of something that you can put in your repertoire at all. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. Yeah, I think that. You know, from the point of view of somebody, for example, who's been doing this since the 90s mm. and, you know, knows what a MIDI channel is and knows what it means when you have local set to on on your synthesizer and you need to set local off so you're not hearing doubled notes mm. and all this kind of stuff. Um, like somebody who's sort of worked their way up from that that primitive era back up to now where everything is much, much simpler and much mm. more... Uh, much more refined and much more efficient mm -hmm. it's naturally very frustrating to see that ah uh, you know young kids these days they've got it easy mm. you know that they, they don't need to know all these kind of fundamental skills and this this knowledge about how things go together because in Ableton live it's just so easy you just drag your sample into the the simpler and off you go you've got a drum beat mm. you know mm. uh, so naturally people from that sort of old school era would be frustrated by it but then on the other hand there's a very important point there that now that it's so much simpler, it gives the ability to so many more people to express their taste right. and their ideas right. because they don't have that that very, very high barrier to entry with the technical ability. Right. And in reality, like it's like I was saying earlier with the the DJs and the the button to you know, the beat matching button, that's like the least important thing, right? Those little tiny technical details, uh, sometimes they're important because sometimes you know, a very particular sound is almost a side effect of some sort of technical detail that, that required it, which can be interesting. Right. But but for the most part, that's not the important thing. The important thing is, well, is this good music or or ain't it? Mm. <laughs> right, right. And in that sense, it's, it's similar to, you know, a very similar argument that happens a lot in the games industry with the rise of tools like Unity, uh, that that make it a lot easier to make games and has led to a huge proliferation in in indie games mm. of of really varying quality right like mm. there's there's some really good games 
that have come out that have been made with Unity that you know you, you think well if if Unity hadn't existed that game might never have been made right and then there's some some, you know, some really terrible games right <laughs> that the world might have been better without so <laughs> uh, so you know and a similar thing happens there where some people you know especially the the old school people and the pe- again like. I started with the ZX Spectrum, and when I was young, I had to press a rubber <laughs> button to type the print statement. Right. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, encoding and assembly and all that. Right. And now, Unity code is, is mostly written in, in C Sharp, which is a very high-level language that runs on a VM. Right. And the rendering and the physics and all these things are done for you. Mm. But you can jump in, you can... You can make games very quickly, and you know, as we both know, people who have come from the same background that I have, and the the days when you had to do everything yourself and write your own renderer from scratch, and have really jumped into the the Unity world and found their productivity has increased hugely, and it's just enabled them to to waste less of their time thinking about the the details of how light reflects on things, right? Which has been solved a million times before by other people. And and spend more time thinking about their actual game, right? So mm. you know that that isn't. A, but you get what Unity gives you, and you know sometimes there are things that you can only do if you really are building building things up yourself. So th- I mean that feels like a very similar sort of argument mm. to me, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that that's a great analogy because uh, when you think of assembly code, mm-hmm. you know, back in air quotes, the day, <laughs> you know, uh, coding in assembly, um, actually, you probably, you'll probably correct me here, but coding assembly, if, if there was a day mm-hmm. where coding assembly in assembly was basically the way you program a, a sophisticated piece of software. Certainly games, like games were a long hold up, but I think even up to like the mid 90s, the idea of using a compiler in a high level language like C right <laughs> was a little bit controversial <laughs> right 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 i mean that's the thing i think that you know assembly language is very very abstract i guess you could say is that right right in, in uh, you know, uh, uh carry on <laughs> uh, in compared to uh i guess more 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 friendly languages where you have a an easier ability to look at the code and sort of see what's going on is it true that assembly is much more abstract in the sense that it's less like a spoken language and more like actual code. I think I know what you're getting at. Any all programmers listening now are probably screaming because in <laughs> in programmer parlance, right. uh, parlance abstract has a meaning and it is oh, the see. opposite of what assembly is, right? Assembly is extremely concrete because it's very close to the machine and you're describing uh, very exactly what you are doing right. with the the specific tools that the processor gives you, right? Right. So in that sense, it's very concrete, right? And as you add layers on top of that, you're abstracting ideas away from the machine to make I it see. easier for the, the human to reason about. Right, I see, I see. Uh, so so in, in the programming sense, assembly is like the least abstract thing. I see. But what you mean is further removed from typical human thought, right? Further removed from the the notions of what you're trying to express in the game yeah and yeah and and more sort of just like random numbers being shuffled around boxes right i think a, a good example of what i'm trying to get at is the difference between assembly and something um something like apple basic right 
which is basically the only programming language that I've ever, ever tried using <laughs> on the Apple on the Apple II. Whereas if I wanted to have if I wanted to the screen to say Alex is cool, mm. then I would say, you know, ten space print space quote Alex is cool close quote. Yes. And then run. And then it would do that. It would say, run. Right. It would say, Alex is cool, right? So right. when you read that, print Alex is cool, that is very, very simplified compared to if I actually wanted to do that in assembly code on an Apple II. Right, right. Yeah. So that's what I mean by abstract in that assembly code, maybe you can tell me how you would actually get Alex is cool to print out on the screen in, in assembly code on an Apple II. Uh, it definitely wouldn't. It definitely wouldn't read very easily. Right, yeah. It would be much more... And it would. this is what I mean, I mean by sort of concreteness. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is definitely getting into the, the technical part of, of the uh, the podcast. But, right. Uh, it, I, and I haven't worked with the Apple II. But if it's anything like the other computers of that era, uh, there would be a specific area of memory where the things that are written on the screen went. Right. And it would just be like... a. F- a, a lot a block right so it'd be one it wouldn't be two-dimensional like the screen is, screen is the entire of memory is sort of one-dimensional it's just one big line of mm. numbers right and each letter right. has a number associated with it and so the top left of the screen would be like this address which you would know and you'd be able to look up in the manual that came with your computer <laughs> right right and it would say this is the address where the screen starts right and then you would have to actually enter the the numbers representing the letters that you wanted right uh in into that that area and if you wanted to do a new line for example uh you, you wouldn't enter like a special character that meant new line you would just go well i know there's 32 i know the screen is like 32 characters wide or whatever it is mm. uh, and it starts here so if i take the beginning point and i add 32 then that's going to be where the second line starts right and so i'll start copying the next lines worth of letters in there which you would do like one at a time right right you see from that that's from the point of view of a non-programmer right i hear that and i think that is so cool like why <laughs> why do, why isn't all programming as cool as that that sounds well, so cool. it definitely <laughs> it I, I i don't know if cool is the word but it, it's not like that these days that would, right. that would be one or two security issues with that model of <laughs> just open memory the whole computer but it's right. it's like in a sense it's like extremely boring like <laughs> just the idea because you can visualize the whole of like the memory of the co- i mean i love it don't get me wrong especially right. these old computers like when it was just the whole of memory was open to you uh, that was a read-only portion but like that you know the memory that you work with you could just write the whole thing and you knew that this bit was for the screen and this bit was for the stuff you wanted to send to the sound chip or whatever and you know the various bits had well-defined things that they did right right and you could just poke bits into the right place Mm. but you would always get like all the the books i would get on machine code for the zx spectrum would have all these pictures of like boxes like physical boxes Mm. (laughs) and there'd all be these cartoons of like things like little chips (laughs) there's <laughs> usually like chips with eyes and legs drawn on them right running around and picking up numbers and putting them in boxes right that's, that's a great and way to teach people to program isn't it that that is like literally that's what assembly programming is you're just right. shuffling 
crap from one box to another and that's like all you're doing and it happens to result in some sort of meaning because the hardware interprets the crap in different ways depending on which box you put it in but you're basically just moving stuff around you know right so it's it's like at the same time like i do love it but it it is also like when you reduce it to that level it's it's so banal it's like stacking boxes literally See, like yeah <laughs> I, I wonder i wonder if the 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 parallel here is that if you spoke to a dj mm. about what it's like to have a successful night and have you know the crowd absolutely on fire with excitement because of the mm. music that you're playing mm. they're not going to be saying to you yeah and i had a great time matching those beats together <laughs> <laughs> you know so that's true you know maybe maybe you know for as far as dj's go because the art form just like with programming the the art form is how do you achieve the end result right you know you you want the software to do this right how do you shuffle those numbers around in assembly so that it does that in a in a, an effective and reliable way right it's the same thing with the dj you know how do i get this crowd to experience the excitement that i want them to and, and beat matching and the sort of mechanical technical aspects of DJing has to become sort of like muscle memory. You know, it has to become mm. secondary, just like for a really proficient assembly coder, what numbers should be sh shuffled into what addresses really has to become muscle memory so you can focus on what you're actually trying to do. Right, yeah. Like I think if you, if you spoke to any, any of our contacts from our time in Kyoto who have been in the games industry for a long time, you know, mm. Giles from Vitae or Dylan from Q Games or any of those people. You, if you spoke to them now, I reckon with a fairly high probability they could tell you the memory addresses of certain, that did certain things on the ZX Spectrum right. or, or some computer like that or the Amiga. I can't remember which they spent more time developing on. Right. But like in the same way that I can tell you phone numbers from 20 years ago, even though right. I haven't memorized a phone number, you know, in the last... 15 years right but i could i could still tell you like my best friend's phone number that that he used 20 years ago because right. it's so sort of burned into my head right and i think yeah it's a similar thing when i was programming on on those old computers i was still very young and very much an amateur right so i didn't really ever get to that level of sort of muscle memory like what you're talking about right but they would have and i bet you they they remember some if they feel like writing into the rabbit or letting us know privately then maybe that'll be follow-up next episode but so okay. i bet there's some okay then so with the same parallel then of djs and programmers so a dj if the act of beat matching and that mechanical action is automated mm. is a dj a musician so then let's cross that question over into the programming realm Somebody who's never touched assembly, mm -hmm. has no idea about what addresses do what and what numbers mm -hmm. need to be put where, and only works in languages that are, uh, in programming terms, highly abstract. Mm. That is, they basically read like language, mm -hmm. you know. Or like mathematics or like some other very abstracted form, but yes. R right, right. Yeah. Is that person a programmer? Uh, well, I would say yes. In fact, I would. I my definition of what is a programmer is quite broad, <laughs> and because you can take that quite far, like the recent shortcuts app that's that's come out on the iPhone, for example, allows you to string together using a, a sort of visual uh, 
language, visual right. set of blocks and arrows, string together actions on, on the iPhone. Right. And you can say, like, pull this image out of any emails matching this and put it into here and resize it and upload it. Do whatever you want to do, right? Right. Uh, just anything that your apps can do, you can sort of get Siri to, to do it for you. Right. And I would say that's programming. I mean, there's no typing involved, but like you're, you know, you're stringing together a, a set of actions. They, there's control flow, you know, the decisions being made. So, yeah. Interesting. So then that means like, for example, uh, a good example here is uh, the blueprint system in Unreal Engine. Yeah. So Unity's, one of Unity, the game engine, Unity, one of its biggest competitors is the Unreal Engine. Mm. And Unreal has a highly visual programming design interface called Blueprints. Mm-hmm. And it's all very visual. You're just basically sort of creating these blocks and dragging nodes and connections around mm-hmm. to sort of form the the path of of logic and action and for your game. Mm-hmm. So somebody who's built their entire game using Unreal's blueprints, yeah, uh, which happens fairly frequently, and there are some really good games. And actually, I'm very very tempted to <laughs> go check out Unreal blueprints myself because I'm a they're quite cool. I've played with them. I'm a terrible coder, but the mm-hmm. like somebody who's built their entire game entirely visually like that, yeah, th- that's a programmer. Well, I mean, they might not just be a programmer, but they have done programming. Yeah, mm. sure. So then, in that case, I think we can probably say that a DJ who beat matches by pressing the sync button is a musician well they're a dj (laughs) i mean i don't (laughs) like the question of whether a dj is a musician or not is is a separate question but they're definitely a dj (laughs) maybe then maybe a better example is is somebody who has gone to stack overflow (laughs) for every part of their code (laughs) and and (laughs) that's every programmer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I see. Because I was going to say that they've gone to Stack Overflow, which right. is a popular site for programmers, as it turns <laughs> out, and uh, basically has sort of searched for everything that they want to do and then basically cut and pasted somebody else's code into into a, a string of right. Right. code, which does something yeah. that they're trying to do. If that's a programmer, then yes, a DJ is a musician. I mean, they, they might not be a very good programmer. Like, it, you know, to some degree all that matters is is that you accomplish what you want to achieve right and sometimes it it really honestly doesn't matter if you do it in a nice way or not like there's a lot of sort of throwaway code which you just you need to get a job done and once that job is done you'll never look at it again and right i don't think there's any reason why you should feel like that like has to be always like really good and really nice and and all of that like i i don't think it's a sin to to write bad code necessarily mm. but sometimes the thing you want to achieve is that is part of what you want to achieve is being able to look at it again 6 months down the line and have the slightest notion what it does right 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 <laughs> and and that's where sort of taste and so called good programming and and best practices mm come in and then if you want anybody else to be able to look at it and know what it does then you know that's even more of a skill and if you want it to be flexible Mm. in the face of change yes it solves this one problem now but it may need to solve other related but different problems further down the line then that's another sort of skill Mm. and and the more of those sort of things you pile on that you consider necessary the harder it is to to create that by just making a frankenstein monster of different stack overflow answers right like you do you do have to understand the stuff you're copying and pasting in order to 
fit it together in any sort of coherent form. I mm. think. Well, I uh, I think that DJs, uh, especially very good DJs, are musicians, mm. and uh, wind instruments are definitely daggy. Mm. 